Hey everyone, and welcome back to my podcast, OT School Surviving and Thriving. So for this episode, we're going to be talking about academic success in OT school and discuss some ways to hopefully help better prepare future and current students for their classes. And not only how to pass your classes, but most importantly, ways to improve your study habits, routines, understanding your preferred learning styles, and things like that. I think that understanding these topics will help ease a transition from undergrad to graduate school, or if you haven't been back to school in a while and have been working, so this can be a good refresher, because graduate school is definitely a lot different from undergrad, and the expectations are different. So I'm really excited for my guest today. Her name is Dr. Lunsford. She is an OT professor at Gannon and is also the new program director for the school. Hi, Dr. Lunsford. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm well. I am well. I'm looking at how things will change in the future for us with our current pandemic. It'll be forever, I think, a time that we all uh, remember, but also thinking about how we're learning and how we're teaching. Um, These things have changed. So this is pretty timely. This is a pretty timely podcast, and I'm excited to be a part of it. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself a little bit. Sure. So my name is Diana Lunsford. I have been a an OT for many, many years, over 20 years, actually 20, over 25 years. I think I'm going into my 26th year. So, and I have been in um, full-time teaching mode for the last nine years. So um, throughout the last nine years, I've continued to work as an OT, um, as a casual or PRN on call person for a variety, uh, in a variety of settings, just to continue to be uh, in the mix and up on what's happening in healthcare. And I I feel grateful to to be able to have done that. So um, I received uh, my doctoral degree in occupational therapy post-professional 2012 um, and a master's degree in adult and higher education. Oh gosh, when was that? Maybe 2008, I think. So back when I was in school, occupational therapy was a bachelor's degree. I was one of the last groups. I think there was a year or two beyond me that was still bachelor's educated. And then it went into a mandatory master's degree. So um, so I feel like, you know, I started out with that bachelor's degree and then the post-professional doctoral degree, but the master's of education has really, I, I, I went in that direction for a master's degree intentionally because I really love to share um, the information that I had gathered and gained and challenge students. So that's been really helpful to me in, in my current academic position and um, previously uh, as a full-time faculty. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me. Seems like you've done a lot <laughs> with your career. I have, you know, I, I am a, um, also a certified hand therapist, but I'll tell you, I consider myself a generalist because I've really worked in, in a variety of settings. So, um, I started out as a new therapist in a position that really gave me an opportunity to expand my knowledge base. So it was a a rotation position. So I rotated from an acute care setting and I was in a level one trauma hospital. So we had burns. 
brain injury. We had spinal cord injury um, uh, diagnoses uh, as well as well as cardiopulmonary stuff. Um, but from an acute care setting to an inpatient setting to an outpatient setting, um, and I was at that hospital for I think around four years, and um, my rotation changed every six months. So I really got some good exposure to a variety of things, and then I kind of fell in love in the outpatient setting with the complexity of hand therapy. I worked for quite a number of years in outpatient orthopedics um, and just outpatient in general, which uh, I've done a variety of things from hand clinics to hospital outpatient settings. And those hospital outpatient settings allowed me to continue to work with, with people with other diagnoses as well, like people with Parkinson's and, and stroke. So some of our, our neurodiagnoses. So yeah, I've, I've, I've really been blessed to feel like I've worked the gamut. Uh, it has it has been a, a wonderful a wonderful journey, and I'm still learning. So so yeah, really the gamut. I have been blessed in that in that manner. But that's one of the good things about OT, or at least that I like about it, is that you can do all kinds of things. Oh, for sure, from one setting to another. Um, but have you always known that you wanted to teach? I didn't always know. I I actually was um, had taken students level ones and level twos, and had done that for a number of years. When I was a, in a management position, I could only take on level ones because my role didn't allow me to do um, level twos because of you know what what my responsibilities were. So, but it was taking on students that really gave me sort of, I guess, the bug. Um, and students had had said, gosh, you really explain things well. I really appreciate that. And then just doors had opened. I had a, a, a friend of mine who's, who was um, working in a COTA program and he needed an adjunct instructor. And um, I started adjuncting in that program and really fell in love with, with sharing my knowledge and challenging students. Uh, and then another door opened for me when I started my doctoral program to adjunct in a master's OT program, uh, and that ended up turning into a full-time position. But um, fell in love with with just thinking about how can I challenge students, how can they learn best, and and really thinking about the legacy of bringing up the next generations of occupational therapists and how to shape those generations um, into being being valuable members of a healthcare team. So. Okay, so my first question for you is academically, where do you find that students struggle the most? It's interesting when when I meet students, my advisees, especially because I get to sit down with them every semester. And, and of course, there are students that just like to kind of cap a squat in my office and share share what their experiences are. And I always appreciate that because I learn so much about students in their transition and what their struggles have been. Uh, and I I'll tell you a common theme is twofold. There's andragogy and there's pedagogy. And I'm not sure if, if anyone listening to this had, has ever heard those terms, but, but those are terms for learning styles. Pedagogy, they're, they're Greek uh, in nature. So uh, pedi meaning child and andra, I think it's andras meaning uh, man. And so those are approaches to teaching and learning for uh, child and for or, or youth and for adults. So there's a difference between typical pedagogical approaches to teaching and then this andragogy or andro andragogical uh, teaching approaches. Um, undergrad, of course, K through 12 is, is a lot of pedagogy. The difference is 
how a child learns and how an adult learns, um, there are many differences actually, but a, a child's learning is very dependent on the teacher. Teacher dependent, it's teacher supported, it's teacher assessed. Um, you know, it's the, the, the teacher that decides whether the student has mastered it or not. And it, and it's very extrinsically motivated. You know, kids, kids are motivated sometimes by grades, um, sometimes by, um, praise from a teacher or, um, just getting to the next phase, but it's usually an extrinsic motivation. That's, that's a, a pedagogical approach, um, is set up for that. It's lecture-based. It's it's helping to feed the students the information. Um, andragogy is very different. An andragogical approach and that theory is really based upon the learner. It it looks at the learner being self-directed, um, knowing the information that they want to acquire, and as such, the learner is very involved in planning out how they're learning and self-directing that learning. They evaluate their own learning uh, as to whether or not they, they feel like they've received the and gathered the information that they need to. Adults use prior experiences. Children don't have prior experiences in life, but adults do. So as adults, we can use those prior experiences to help us learn. Um, as adults, we want to find relevance in what we're learning and the material, the content that we're learning and being able to apply that to our role, our, our role in our career or our social situation. Um, and then there's a, that readiness to learn for adults. You know, this is, I think, a prime example for adult learning is an OTD. The OTD, the doctoral degree, is not a requirement for occupational therapy right now, although there's been a lot of talk of it and things in the in the past and will continue to be in the future, it's not a requirement. But this is intrinsic. This is different than our our, our kids, right? Our kids are, are motivated extrinsically. But for the adult, we are motivated intrinsically. A doctoral degree is something that, that we desire to have, um, a desire for improvement, to build our esteem and our confidence. So I think all of those things go back to this transition and what is most difficult for students is many of our undergrad programs are limited in their andragogical approaches. Many of our undergraduate programs are still teaching in this pedagogy, which is not entirely bad because it's foundational, but now we get into a doctoral program that is self-directed and very much adult learner driven. And that transition can be really difficult for students. So, um, so I have found my experience has been that is, uh, probably the number one, um, transitional problem is the style. Also the rigor of the program, um, of any program, um, I think graduate program wise is different. And then just some of the little nuances. There's a culture in occupational therapy. There's a culture in grad school, certainly a culture in Gannon um, as to what the expectations are and understanding those uh, needs to, to come at the beginning so that the student can transition 
through the program. You know, you can go from a big state university where you're one of 150 students in a classroom and you're a, a number or, or just a name. You're not really a relationship with a, a program or an instructor. And when you get into a grad program that has a small cohort, the expectations for, especially for our occupational therapy program, are such that we expect from you. We want to know you. We want you to know us. So the relationship is there, but also um, the accountability piece is there. And that can be really difficult for students if they had not experienced that, um, if they went to, to a larger uh, undergraduate university or had, you know, experiences that weren't relationally, relationally um, posed with their instructors. That's probably more about theory than you'd care to care to know, but I felt like the background of it is important to, to mention. It 100% makes sense to me um, because that's something that I struggle with a lot. And I know during undergrad, I kind of would just study the day or the night before and I would do just fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, this must be what graduate school is like, right? But then it was kind of a wake up call for me because I realized you definitely cannot just study the night before. You're not going to retain the information, um, especially because in grad school, a lot of the exams are application based and they're not so much just like plug and chug. (laughs) So I 100% agree with you. I definitely struggled with that as well. Um, What suggestions or advice do you have for studying for exams and practicals? Well, suggestions, I think um, this kind of goes with with knowing what type of um, learner you are. So I think this is really a, a multifaceted question because some students don't really know how they learn best. And if you don't know how to learn um, or you don't know what your typical style is, then it's hard to set your, yourself up for success uh, to study as well. So understanding your learning style is really important. Um, I also think that there is value with studying in groups and also value in studying individually. I don't think doing just one approach is as effective as, as a multi-differentiated approach because we hear things like, let, let's just take studying individually Um, for example. So if I'm in class and I take notes or I record my lectures or I review my PowerPoints and and I do this individually, that that can be great. That can be a great way to really block everything else out, focus on the task at hand. Um, But what if you missed something in lecture? Or what if you interpreted something in lecture that was meant in a different way, but but you wrote it down through your interpretation in in a unique way? Um, That's where studying with others comes becomes very valuable because someone else might say, but that's not how I understood that concept. Didn't so-and-so say X, Y, and Z. And now this discourse, this discussion happens where, where students can really work through it together um, and understanding that. So that's where uh, being in a group is really valuable. Where studying in a group becomes problematic. And what I have seen is when a group think happens. And so a good example of this is is some of my practicals for the courses that I teach. Uh, I can always tell who is studying together when I see two, three, four, five students all 
demonstrate improper technique during a practical. So let's take range of motion, for example. Um, the, the incorrect landmark to place the goniometer. And I watch several students come in during practical day and they have placed the goniometer on the improper landmark, which is ultimately going to give you an, an improper read. What has happened, and through my investigation, what has happened is that students study together. And one student in particular often tends to be a strong student and a verbal student will say, oh, no, it's like this. And they say it with enough confidence that nobody fact checks. <laughs> and when nobody checks, everybody goes into a group think and they just assume that the person um, who is espouting, espousing the information is accurate. So that's where group studying is not quite as valuable. So I think there's value in knowing how you learn best, but also studying individually and then studying with others as well. I think there's value in all of those approaches. So I recommend a differentiated approach to studying. I also, along with that, recommend studying in groups, but I feel like for me, it was more beneficial to study in small groups with a couple of friends especially ones that you're more comfortable with, because I felt like larger groups didn't work out very well. I think it's important to study with classmates who are going to support you and help you out without being overbearing and stressing you out more before an exam. Absolutely. That was always an issue. You know, people would be like, oh, have you studied for this yet? And have you done this assignment yet? And, you know, they would always try to compare themselves to other students, so. Yeah, I think, I, I, I agree, Steph. I think that that is really important that you, that you bring that up because I have found, we, we've tried to kind of implement a, an understood policy. It's not a written policy, but we've encouraged students to not compare. Again, as adult learners, the motivation should be intrinsic to learning. And when you start comparing grades and you start really focusing on that, it can block the learning. But you're right. You do have to study with like-minded people and with people that you are comfortable to be vulnerable with. So finding those people your first semester on campus sometimes takes a little, a little work to figure out who would be best um, for your personal approach. Right. So what is the best way for a student to understand what learning style works best for them? I'm always surprised at how many students come from undergrad and still don't know their learning style. A lot of people do. Many students do understand, but it never fails that there's always a handful that have kind of plugged through and, and never really understood how they best learn. There's a lot of tests, free tests on the internet that you can go in and, and look at your own learning style. But I, I will tell you that understanding what each of those are is, is the first step and kind of understanding your own style. So depending on, you know, if I just talk broadly here from an education background, three broad overarching styles exist. Uh, a visual learning style, uh, visual learners, an aural, A-U-R-A-L, or auditory learner, verbal learner, and then this kinesthetic or haptic or hands-on learning. So um, there's many things that fall into each of those categories, but really understanding what those categories are and consist of can help you determine, oh, I do that. That's me. I must be that. 
Um, so, you know, a visual learner is someone who, who likes images, images, um, and even likes the, to read the narrative text on a PowerPoint, like something to see, to follow along with, um, visual learners want to see things done. Um, models, videos are good for these folks, diagrams, um, like I said, the PowerPoint words on a PowerPoint, that, that's a visual learner uh, versus an, an auditory or a, an aural or verbal learner. That's, that's more someone who appreciates storytelling, uh, discussion-based lectures, um, traditional lectures where the instructor is at the front of the class really discussing and, and talking about the PowerPoint information. That's a verbal or an auditory learner. I will tell you, uh, I have taken several um, learning style tests throughout my career as an academic for fun and for coursework that I've done myself. And I'm lowest on the auditory scale. Um, uh, you know, anytime we have a hiccup with technology and I have to call my husband, he wants to talk me through it. I'd rather do it. But I know that enough about myself. Um, I can do it. I'm smart enough and I can do it and follow through if I have to, but it's not my preferred style. Um, I work highest on the haptic or hands-on kinesthetic approach. And that approach um, really goes into the doing piece of learning, the role-playing, these case studies where we have to problem-solve through it, the discovery and trial and error to a hands-on lecture. So understanding, you know, this is the person, that hands-on person, um, this is a person that needs to move and do. Um, I talk with my hands um, because I need to move. I walk back and forth in the front of the classroom. That is my, my way of delivering the information. Um, when I'm working at home, I take frequent breaks to get up and uh, throw in a load of laundry or to get up and just move around. Again, that's a kinesthetic style. And I read, I highlight, and I write things down. That's a mixture of your kinesthetic and your visual approaches. So understanding how you typically are successful will help you understand how to better set yourself up to learn. Um, as an instructor, I recognize that all learning styles exist in a classroom. So for me, I try to set up my classroom lecture material in a very differentiated approach to learning. We all learn differently. So I try to hit, if you will, every learning style and, and bring in a variety of approaches so that students can all um, take something away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that really helps. Um because I know just sitting and listening to a lecture for an hour, hour and a half is just not beneficial, especially for someone like me. I'm also a um, kinesthetic and a visual learner. So I always like to take notes. I prefer to actually write out my notes as opposed to typing them. Cause I feel like, you know, you have like that hands on with the notebook and the pen and you're seeing it. And highlighting, and I agree, I'm also the same way. I, um, I read a study, and there's not a ton of research out there, but I think the re body of research is growing in your ability to recall information is actually connected with uh, more highly connected or correlated with the, the um, 
act of writing with a pen and paper. So yeah, it is interesting. So I encourage students to actually go go old school and take handwritten notes because we're so used to putting everything digitally. And while I appreciate not killing the trees, and, um, you know, the research, the research is supportive of that writing, uh, the task of actually writing as opposed to keyboarding for recall. Yeah, and it really amazes me how many people actually don't write notes on a note from what I've noticed. I don't know. Everybody's different, but I feel like writing in a notebook is a lot more beneficial. I agree. So my other question is, do grades really matter in graduate school? And what kind of advice do you have for students worried about achieving the highest grades? Oh, gosh, it's such a great question. It really is. Because look, you, you've got to, so grades matter in the sense of you've got to achieve the minimum requirements of your program to pass your coursework. Okay, so grades matter as far as that minimum achievement goes. Um, that varies from program to program. Uh, so you really have to, to be aware of it from that perspective and what the consequences are for not achieving those minimum requirements. At the end of your program, that this this internal motivation to achieve the greatest thing and to be perceived in in a, a summa cum laude or a magna cum laude or a cum laude status that that should be internal so that comes out at graduation so there's a little external uh, pat on the back as well but uh, I will tell you that when you go out looking for your first job or any job for that matter no one cares if you've graduated summa magna or any loud whatsoever, you know, are you a, a good fit for your department, for the, the organization and for, for what they are trying, what their goals are. And that some of that comes down to personality and how you interview. Um, and some of that comes down to your accomplishments, not necessarily grades, but what else have you done from service and giving back into your community to your leadership roles. So I think there's so many other pieces to a graduate and a professional program like ours that you know, grades matter only so much. You know, really focusing on the grade blocks your ability to take the information and apply it. And focusing on grades, that's real uh, pedagogy. That's a real pedagogical approach. This adult learning approach where we are intrinsically motivated to learn to know because I'm going to have patience like this and I'm going to want to do these techniques and I'm going to want to understand these concepts and these theories and apply them to my role as an occupational therapist in the future. That comes from an adult approach to um, teaching and learning. So I think the grade only goes so far. And I get that, you know, you have to have some sort of measurement. Yep, you're right. And that's where the minimum requirements come in. So when we make mistakes and we do poorly on something, if we really, again, adult learning includes reflection, transformational learning, which is a whole other theory I won't get into, transformational learning, a big part of transforming as a student and a professional includes reflection. So if you take the time and really look at something that you bombed, that you didn't do well on, and you look at what went wrong and reflect on it, you're going to learn so much from that mistake and from that failure, sometimes even more than you do if you would have done awesome on it. Reflective pieces is really highly valuable. 
Oh yeah. I've learned the most from my mistakes and I made a lot of mistakes like everybody else. Everybody makes mistakes, right? Of course. Yeah. And I think this is a really big topic because I know a lot of students and I know it's unintentional, but going back to, you know, other students talking about grades and asking, what did you get? And really, it doesn't even matter because at the end of the day, when you graduate, your goal is to get a job. Right. So, but I think it causes a lot of stress for students. And, you know, you want to do your best work and you naturally, sometimes you want to compare yourself to others who are in your program because you think, you know, you should be on the same level as them. You all got into this program, but I think it can definitely cause a lot of extra stress for students. Yeah. And and I think that you're right. It's human nature to see, you know, where do I, where do I fall? You know, where am I in the pack? But I guess I'm going to ask you from a student perspective. So what do you do when two things, when someone's asking about your grades, number one, how, how have you approached this? I have my own thoughts, but from a student perspective, how have you approached it? And number two, what do you do when you are receiving the energy that is not necessarily positive energy from others, maybe hype, negative hype surrounding a a test or a practical before or after that experience. And do you have some positive go-tos that you can share? So to be honest, I really struggled with this. Um, Especially in my first year, I had a lot of low self-confidence and thinking like in a lot of negative self-talk. I think what helped me later on is just making sure that I was around people that I knew wouldn't do that. So my friends that were not going to really talk about grades, we're going to try to support each other. Um, So I just tried to avoid, um, you know, people that I knew were going to try to compare themselves with others. And I just try to avoid them. And I would never talk about grades because, you know, when somebody else had talks about getting an A and you didn't. So and that brings you down. So I just never brought it up. Yeah, I've had some of my my advising um, students. We've had conversations about this, and I think, like you said, the action the action when this is going on is number one to avoid it and avoid those people, but also to be very verbal and vocal about you know it works best for me if I don't talk about it or to. To, you know, to to really let the group know if you guys are going to keep talking about this, um, I'm just going to change tables because I actually it doesn't benefit me. So, you know, and and I think that's an important, uh, a good approach. I think it's important for other people to recognize that you know, hey, it's working for her. Maybe I ought to try that too because you do definitely um, get influenced by by your peers. And if it's negative, you know, if there's hype before, if you have have some anxiety before, which you should before practicals and exams, you know, that's natural, that's human, that's perfectly normal. Um, And if it gets worse, because of the company that you're keeping, then don't keep that company. Um, And let them know, like, we can sit here and we can be positive about how we're going into this next next exam or next practical, or we can make it worse for each other, we get to choose that, I think is, is the is the end of that story, you get to choose. So make your choice wisely and let others know that you're choosing. And and if it's positive experience for you and it works for you, then keep doing that. Because as a, um, an extrovert, I personally really, really feel the emotional contagion. Have you heard that word before? Yes, I have like misery loves company. 
It, it is. It's, it has been um, more recently in, in the literature and written about more, but you know, emotional contagion is that infection that goes through a group, small group, a large group. It can be a positive infection or contagion, or it can be negative. Um, and it is the tone a voice. It is the attitude and the behaviors that are, are accompanying the feelings of one person. So, you know, recognizing what you bring to the group for sure is one thing, but also recognizing what other people bring to the group. And if they can't help themselves, then you have to remove yourself. Yeah, that's a great point. So when you were in OT school, thinking back, is there anything you personally struggled with during your time as a student? I would say I uh, didn't understand my learning style. And because this was undergrad, for me, it was an undergraduate program, uh, like I mentioned earlier. A couple of things, there there wasn't a a lot of um, andragogical approaches. So, you know, we had labs, so those were hands-on, and I always shined in labs, um, not recognizing at the time that I was very kinesthetic in my learning. But I did very poorly with a very pedagogical approach. I did poorly with a strict lecture-based approach where it was sort of the instructor up on stage there. Um, I didn't do well with that approach, but I'm not sure, you know, 25 years ago, anybody really about differentiated styles like we do today. So I think I, I struggled with some of that, but I was very motivated and, and self-disciplined. Um, so as a person, I tend to be a pretty disciplined person. So anything that I couldn't get, you know, internet was kind of a, an obscure, obtuse uh, theory back then, right? And not everybody had computers and we didn't have this information highway like we do now. So um, I'd go back to my texts. I, I would read and reread and I would have discussions with my classmates should there be something that was presented in the classroom that I didn't understand. But I, I did struggle with the approach, um, knowing now that I'm a kinesthetic learner, not a verbal learner. So yeah, and there wasn't PowerPoints, you know, there wasn't a big video screen um, like there is now. That Those were special occasions. We saw videos and things like that. So yeah, that's crazy to think about that. No internet, no PowerPoint. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the labs were great. You know, we had labs like you guys have labs, traditional labs where we got our goniometers and, and, you know, learned a muscle test and, you know, handling techniques and peds and got to play with the Swiss balls and that sort of thing. But traditional lecture styles, you know, we do a lot of case-based stuff in our lecture styles. We do a lot of discussion. I know a lot of my lectures tend to be hands-on because um, I also need that, you know, as a teacher um, to stay engaged. You know, your, your instructors want to be engaged too. It's not all about you guys. We want to stay engaged. Um, you know, I, I get bored if I'm doing the same old thing. So. so what do you suggest for students dealing with burnout? Yeah, that's a hard one. And I, I know the rigor of our program, so so it's understandable. I think you know, burnout is a real thing. And, and the one thing like you had mentioned earlier in our discussion here is that one of the greatest things of OT is that you can do so many different things under one license, right? You could be a pediatric specialist or a geriatric specialist or a, an orthopedic hand therapist or someone who only does neuro all under the same umbrella of a license being a generalist. So um, I think I think that that is is one thing 
as an OT uh, that you can rely upon to avoid burnout. You know what? If you're burned out in a, in a specific setting, you can move on and your license allows you to work in another setting. If you can get, get a position elsewhere, um, then you should do that. And we are lucky enough to work in healthcare where we can um, find jobs very readily. Some areas are a little more saturated with OT than others, but for the most part, we are very wanted and um, jobs are still plentiful. So in terms of school, you know, that part is, is difficult because, you know, school is school and it's a three and a half year program or a three year and one semester program. Some of the things that I like to do for myself are to really take advantage of the breaks. Now, this fall looks different again with our pandemic. Traditionally in the fall, we start in August, we have a fall break. Just when things start to ramp up and students think, oh my gosh, we've been in school since the end of August and now it's, you know, first, second week of October and it's really getting stressful, you get a fall break. Do this self-care that we are as OTs so quick to refer back to, but maybe not necessarily quick to implement for ourselves. Take those breaks, walk on the beach, go to a friend's. Do what you can do to check out so that you can come back with fresh eyes. After fall break, you come back again and, oh my gosh, it gets really thick and and the rigor gets to you. And then we've got Thanksgiving break. And then it's just a short time until the Christmas holiday break. So, So I think to look forward and set those goals, but when you have those breaks, to take your own advice as an OT and an OT student and really, really get some good self-care in and whatever that looks like for you. You know, everybody's self-care routine is very different. For me, as I work these long days um, in my home, I remove myself from my office every lunch and I sit elsewhere in my home or on my lanai and I have a 30-minute lunch break. I think that's going to be important when you don't have those breaks, right? It's the time of the year that you don't get those breaks. You guys are in the middle of your DSIs. You have to go to the end of August. I think what can you do during the day to give yourselves a little reprieve? What does that look like? Is it a lunch break? Is it, I'm going to work really hard from nine until five or eight to four 30 or whatever that day looks like. And then at the end of that, I'm closing my computer, um, doing the same thing on the weekends. I know sometimes we use those, those days to catch up. And while that is okay. And sometimes you should do that. That shouldn't be every weekend. I think, Burnout is real and it's real for your clinicians and it's real for students, but to utilize and build in the times that are most appropriate to refresh yourself, you've got to fill that glass up somehow. If you're not filling it up, there's nothing left and only you know what works best for you. I have been blessed to, to practice some yoga and to do some meditation and to be able to do that, whatever that looks like for you. Again, so many different ways to take care of ourselves. So what does that self-care look like for you? It might be social, it might be meditative, it might be spiritual, um, physical. I appreciate a, a nice long walk or a hard workout. You know, what does that look like for you? keeping those endorphins going with the self-care really important. So that's the best that I have. Um, Have you yourself implemented anything that you can speak to? Yeah. So for me, um, just 
trying to have that work-life balance, like you said. Um, I try to exercise, so I really like to go out for a run. Um, Unfortunately, it's been really hot out. (laughs) You know, I'll try to go for a run at like 8 o'clock at night. I do yoga. I really enjoy cooking. So... Yeah, I think that's a good point. Just to make sure, you know, take time to do your the hobbies that you enjoy doing. You know, this is all about academics, but, you know, you want to make sure that you have a good work-life balance. Absolutely. And some of that is integration. You know, some of that is how do you integrate work in, in, in life into work. Um, and again, you know, that, that can be while you're on campus. Can you take a walk while you're on campus? Can you close your book and have, you know, j- just chat with people you haven't chatted with. So some of the, the integration um, may be what you have to do, you know, for those times that that it seems constant. But yeah, really recognizing that you need it. We all need it. We all need it. Yeah, definitely. So my last question for you is, what takeaway advice do you have for future OT students regarding academic achievement, or just academics in general? I would say, well, there's several things, but I would say one of the things at the top of my list is for students to recognize the resources and utilize the resources. Recognize that you can ask for help. So many students don't, they don't ask for help. They don't utilize the writing center or um, maybe the free, you know, four to six counseling sessions that were offered through BayCare that can be really valuable uh, using those. You know, there, there are things, there are resources that um, we have available that your tuition dollars help support. So I would say, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Chances are you are not alone in the classroom if something is getting past you. And your instructors want you to succeed. You have earned a spot. We interview intentionally so that we can now recognize uh, the types of students that we want and diversify our student population and really understand the students that are coming in. Um, but also the point is, is we want you to be successful. So you can't be afraid to ask for help should you need it. And we have really tried to put um, things in place. GA tutors, uh, another resource, an example uh, of somebody that we have. Your mentors, um, students will be uh, either paired or get to choose a mentor coming on board um, and, and utilizing your classmates. Like we talked about that group option uh, when it comes to studying, that somebody hears something that you, you didn't or understood something differently. So utilizing all of those resources would probably be uh, my best advice for uh, students to be successful. Yeah, that's some really great advice. Asking questions. I know a lot of people struggle with that. And I think that does have to do with sometimes either you don't want to look stupid or you come from a really big undergrad. You've never asked questions in that kind of setting. So I think that's really huge and using those resources. Well, Dr. Lunsford, thank you so much for allowing me to interview you and taking a part of this podcast. And I'm sure that, you know, the information that you've given me really benefit a lot of students out there. I hope so. It was my pleasure. And uh, I I think this is great. I, I think you're doing a great job with this. And I'm excited to see how it all comes out. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Sounds great. Bye bye. Bye.